This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. I'm Wong Xiaoning and this is The Breakfast Grill. Equinas, the government's private equity arm, has been in existence since 2010 and is vested in more than 70 companies with total committed investments exceeding 4.4 billion ringgit to date. But in this era of rising interest rates, the possibility of a global recession and the challenge of monetization, can this Bumiputra Focus Fund meet its objectives while ensuring performance? Questions we pose to their CEO, Said Yasser Arafat. Thanks for coming on The Breakfast Grill again. First off... I understand you have a new boss, the Economic Minister Rafizi Ramli. I know it's very early days, but has there been any communication, resetting of KPIs, for example? Uh, on your question whether I've met our new minister, we have not met, so there's has not been any engagement yet. But I'm sure he's a very busy man. Uh, but do you expect any significant changes to Equinas? I ask this because when I look at the map of other government-linked investment companies, I do think to myself, Consolidation on some level makes sense because if we look at GLICs who invest in development stage, I counted at least five existing institution programs like MAFCAP, PNS. And then if we look at funds, of course, there is Kazana, PNB, Coop. So should Equinas be consolidated with another agency or maybe absorb others? Not an easy question for me to answer, clearly. But you have to look at the role of what each agency play. For Equinas, for example, where we were set up, we were very careful to ensure that there's no overlap in terms of the role that we play uh, versus other entities within the government sector. We are probably government's only pure play private equity. We are not an asset allocator. We are a private equity player. Uh, if you look at uh, PNB or EPF, for example, they are multi-asset investor. They play mainly in asset allocation. Uh, which private equity is part of an asset class which they hold. Equinas, there's clear KPI in terms of what we invest in and the need to exit for all of our investments. So Equinas is not holding any assets on a longer-term basis as per our mandate. Okay, so there's a defined timeline for everything. correct. And And if you talk about other venture capital players, again, venture capital put on a very different lens. Uh, When they invest in assets, uh, it's a different skill set altogether. So it's very easy to lump everything together Mm. as as an investment vehicle. But the truth is, they all play an extremely different role. What about being part of a larger GLIC like PNB? I mean, they are the, of course, 340 billion fund size. Mm. And they've also stated their intention to move into the private equity space. Mm. Um, 7%, I think, is their target. And since they also share a Bumi Putra agenda like Equinas, won't a merger make sense since interests are aligned so you can actually uh, be quite. part of their efforts to move into PE? Not quite, in the sense that one of our biggest advantages because being small means we are, we are nimble. Mm. Uh, if you get absorbed into a much larger entity, your decision-making, the processes and all that will be extremely different. Okay. Right? So I think agility, nimbleness is extremely important for private equity. Uh being on the ground, being uh, how we were set up is is unlike any other so-called uh, private equity or outsourced private equity. I think a lot of private equity owned by governments in Malaysia, the arms of private equity are really fund of funds. Okay, so it's right? more outsourcing rather than correct. on the ground. Correct. So for us, we focus on direct investment. All of our staffs are involved mm. in... Uh, Maybe they should outsource the funds to you all then. <laughs> That's up to them to think. 
Yeah. Okay, in the meantime, let's look at the challenges that PE funds face globally. You know, we saw years of a lot of dry powder. Mm. And a recent EY report notes that fundraising activity has slowed globally yeah. by 13%. So we're just mm. talking about for third quarter this year, $125 billion US dollars. Not a huge sum by standards. While pitch book notes that deal flow in Asia has also slowed. I think no thanks to the also challenging macroeconomic conditions in this region, in particular mm. from China. Now, is this the case for Malaysia too? Have you seen much fewer deals available? Yeah, I think that's the case, especially for 2020 and 2021. What we saw was a lot of digital, digital type of deal. For 2022, we started to see a surge in a deal pipeline. But I think for Malaysia, uh, the real issue is really the quality of deal flows. Uh, for example, for this year alone, we have looked at so far 25 deals. Rejected most, currently looking at six deals actively. So there is truth in the sense that there's a lack of depth to this PE ecosystem in Malaysia. I come up with this statement because I looked at this ICMR report, right? They are an mm. independent think tank under the Securities Commission and they issued this report late last year and noted that the Malaysian PE industry has underperformed against global and regional mm. PE. Now, is that really the truth? Is, is liquidity an issue? Um, there are just not enough exciting deals out there. Why? Are we not actually creating the right space for Malaysian entrepreneurs to come up? No, I think, I mean, it's, it's a long answer, really. If you want to look at that sector, I think partly is because uh, if you look at the Malaysian economy, I think we have a structural issue. If you look at top 30 largest company now versus what they were 20 years ago. It's the same. It's the same. It's very old economy. If you look at our stock market index. Old economy as well to what it is today, is roughly the same. So it boils down to a couple of things. I think structurally, we need to change. Uh, we tend to focus a lot in the past in utilities, real estate, properties, plantations, and that continues still today, more or less, mm. right? Of course, recently, there's shift towards digital. But I think there's need to be clarity in terms of which area of digital do you want to go into. And but I think not all digital has been successful, right? Yeah, For example, absolutely. So we saw the likes of Grab listing in, in yeah. via a spec in New York and it's done not well. Gojet yeah. also not yeah. well in Indonesia. Yeah. So that doesn't necessarily equate absolutely. to success, right? Absolutely. So I think as a country, I think we need to look at our own ecosystem. There are mm. certain areas which we have a clear advantage. One area is the E&E sector. We have probably one of the best ecosystems in Southeast Asia. Uh, the maritime sector, oil and gas, energy sector, again, we have clearly clear competitive advantage in those sectors. And then if you look at digital itself, while we want to try to promote digital, I think we have to be very careful because the cash burn rate on digital business can be relatively high. Everybody just wanted market share. They worried less about Correct. profit, but that, of course, has come back to haunt them, I Correct. guess. Uh, just to give you an anecdote, uh, we've looked at digital, digital deal, just like mm. any other private equity over the past two years. Uh, a lot of people is anticipating that digital deal will be, digital will be a new norm, but come 2022, is further from the truth. If mm. you look at uh, any online marketplace or anything that related to digital, revenue has dropped by about 30 to 40%. Yeah, right. we have seen lots of job cuts in that space, even in C uh, in Singapore, Correct. right? But the other thing that I see, the other headwind is, of course, this rising interest rate environment, right? Does that change your internal rate of return requirements? Um, because, you know, the risk-free rate has improved. Mm -hmm. So is there a magic figure that Equinas looks at um, in terms of deciding this is the investment for us? What is your investment criteria? Yeah, for us, really, uh, for investment criteria, I think, 
it's quite simple for us. We look at the industry itself. Mm. Uh, are there room for growth in the industry itself? Uh, certain industry, while looks lucrative, or you may be buying market leader, but the reality, the industry itself is small. So it doesn't make sense. The scalability of the industry is an important factor for us. Mm. Uh, the positioning of the company itself, uh, are they just a participant in that particular industry? Are they a market leader? Are they innovator in the industry? Uh, what are the USP of the company? That's mm. again, a very key uh, thing for us to consider. Uh, we look at the management. This is where I think in, in Malaysia in particular, uh, there's a bit of mismatch. Typically, you have a very strong founder, but a so-so second and third tier uh, management, right? So that's very common feature in uh, Malaysian enterprises. And I think this is where PE can comes in, in terms of helping the owner or founders to institutionalize, to create a stronger management bench uh, for the company to grow. Which then begs the question, how much involvement is there in Equinas in your in, uh, investee companies? Yeah, we are fairly involved with our investee company. Mm. We are in touch with our company that we invest in almost a weekly basis. We have an Exco structure where Exco meets every month to track the performance, both financial as well as operational metrics. Uh, we have representation in the board. Uh, so when we invest in company, even though it's a minority interest, typically what we do is we have to ensure that we have significant influence, even as a minority shareholder in the company that we invest in. But the other headwind is the ability to exit. You already highlighted that there's a, mm. you know, all your funds have a fixed duration. Yeah. And the ability to exit is really important. And I, I understand that what there are at least three funds whose term have ended or will end. So Equinas Direct Tranche 2, Tranche 3, and even Equinas Outsource Tranche 1. Now with this soft capital markets, the IPO market, perhaps not the most robust. So can you give us an update? Are yeah. you facing headwinds there? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the case for uh, a lot of funds in Asia as well. Um, mm. It's Asset overhang is becoming a common feature. In, in, in private equity, especially in Asia or even globally. So, uh, generally, funds get longer and longer in terms of their tenure and life. Just renewing. Right? So I think that's one of the biggest challenge for, uh, for us particularly. I think our fund one, we have closed our fund one. So that's been, uh, I mean, all assets in the fund one have been uh, closed. Fund two, there's only one asset left, mm. uh, which is Okim. Fund three, we are starting to divest um, uh, basically, our assets under fund tree. I think we'll start start off with Ali Sun, which uh, we're looking at to divest uh, next That's year. That's the sports. Sports retail. Yeah. The, Do you think is IPO is a better route or is it a trade sale? Or is trade sales more challenging now because of the market conditions? Okay, from because for us, we prefer trade sale in general, right? Of course, trade sale, what happens is the side impact of trade sales while you get a full clean exit, uh, it's not always easy to find a buyer, right? Uh, the negative side is it is that you don't build profile, right? Okay. So I think the biggest advantage about uh, IPO is really building profile, name for the company, name mm. for the private equity that invests in in the company. For us, trade sale has been on on the contrary, Shawning. I think our trade sale, I think we have been fairly successful. We have done. We started off in terms of portfolio company. I were under direct. It's about twenty four companies. Mm. Uh, we only have about eleven company left because we have successfully divested. So if you look at our company, the uh, bulk of our company, I think we've sold to different different type of entity. It's absorbed by strategic as well as regional private equity. And I think the process of institutionalization itself helped providing comfort to the buyers. Mm. For example, a lot of our portfolio companies, in fact, in almost all are audited by big four firms, mm. right? So when people take comfort in terms of 
your books, essentially. So if your books are clean, I think generally people are a bit more comfortable to invest in the company, to buy the company that you have invested. And if, as long as you've gone through the institutionalization process itself, mm. uh, it helps in terms of uh, the asset itself uh, in uh, getting disposed. And also getting a better valuation? Yeah, absolutely. On the Breakfast Grill this morning is Equinas, the government's private equity company. When we come back from the break, we asked your CEO, Said Yasser Arafat, if the returns are below or above expectations compared to their peers, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9, welcome back to The Breakfast Grill. On the hot seat this morning is Said Yasser Arafat, CEO of Equinas. Before the break, should there be consolidation among government-linked investment companies? And does the challenge of rising interest rates make their job much harder? Now, Yase, I want to talk about this ESG framework. Sure. And I noticed considerable pages dedicated to it in your 2021 Equinas Annual Report. My issue is that is it complementary to the original vision and values of Equinas, right? So the vision is to be this world-class private equity fund management company whilst maintaining strict commercial discipline to create value. So what happens if there is this in target that meets the investment criteria but doesn't meet up to the ESG framework standards? What do you do? Do you walk away? No, uh, we don't walk away. I think it's simple as that. I think our approach on ESG is slightly different from other institutional funds. We view ESG as complementary in terms of what we do. If you think about our mandate, we have quite a fair bit of social mandate. I think the problem with ESG, people always view it as environment, governance, and then social. We view ESG as social, governance, then environment, because we don't think you can go to E without first tackling S and G, right? If you think about developing economy, what's matter most to them is whether access to education, mm. access to income, access to opportunity, that's a key part of any developing uh, economy. And uh, we want to play in that part. The governance part is when we come in, where we try to institutionalize the organization. The E is, of course, we have to be environmentally responsible in the company that we invest in. Uh, whatever that they do has to comply with certain standards. But to walk away from a deal just because, ah, yeah, you probably don't Like have, an oil and gas company, like which you and, already have in your portfolio, correct. right? You have Icon Offshore. So let's talk about um, the potential investee companies that you look at. So because I know you're going to raise a fair bit of proceeds. I calculated the fund size of the respective vintage years that are up for, that are due to expire, about $2.9 billion. That was mm. the seeded fund. So what are the plans for it? And can I assume the fund size has, of course, increased? Yeah. I mean, you're going to create new tranches? Yeah, I think for, for us, it's, it's, it's simple. Uh, our capital meant to be recyclable capital. Mm. Essentially, we wind out company under each of the tranches. We're going to create new tranches, essentially, uh, to invest more. And the government has given you that mandate to continue. Yeah. Okay. So will there be a change in industry focus going forward? I mean, in the past, when I look at your investee companies, heavy in education, oil and gas, FMCG, I noticed a new uh, shift towards healthcare, pharmaceuticals. Yeah. So yeah. perhaps you can expand on that. Yeah, uh, there's a bit, there's a slight shift in terms of what uh, we're doing in terms mm. of sector focus. We, are, we remain sector agnostic. The only two sectors that we don't do is health, uh, sorry, uh, real estate and construction, but outside of those sectors, we are open to, uh, to look at. But there's, I think for the past three, four years, there's a bit of a shift uh, in terms of sector that we're focusing. The main four sectors that we're focusing is uh, logistic and services, healthcare, uh, consumer, 
as well as uh, digital and manufacturing. Okay. This year, there's, the pipeline hasn't been great, right? Mm. Quality of the pipeline. The quality. pipeline is okay. <laughs> is this partially because you're focused very much on Bumiputra companies and Malaysian only? Is that the, the cause of the restriction? I think to a certain extent, it is. Uh, clearly, I think as a single country fund, your pool of deals are a lot more limited than a private equity that can invest regionally. Mm. Right on top of that, you got to be very selective to ensure you deliver returns. Will you ever change that? That those two restrictions? Potentially, but I think it needs a blessing from government if you were to change those two restrictions. Right? Yeah. So we work with what we have because that's a mandate currently. Uh, but if the government is open to us to look and widening our mandate to include uh, regional or in, to include other product product types, mm. we, we are open to it. Okay, and I want to spend some time on performance. So I had a look at the 2021 annual report because that's the available data to me. So help me understand why, and I'm looking at direct tranche 3. Sure. Now, is that underperforming with a net internal rate of return negative 10.4%? Is this because of its substantial holdings in Icon Offshore? This 26% stake is parked there? No, not, not really. I mean, uh, because our fund tree is a mixture of some of the carry forward investment in, yes. in, in Found Noan. Uh, that has performed okay, mm. uh, average. Uh, Icon Offshore, as you know, we have put in a lot of measure in and I think the company has been performing well since three to four years ago. Yeah, but I mean, I, I'll be honest, if I look at the original share price and we're, yeah. you know, we're doing the share split, yeah. the, the IPO price is actually above six ringgit. Yeah, and today it's just trading below 20 cents. Yeah, but I think from share price perspective, we can't just purely look at share price. I think mm. from performance perspective, if you look at last year and this year performance, it's tracking close to pre-IPO performance, right? Okay. Share price is what it is. People are just shying away from oil and gas. But you have to exit and because yeah. it's listing, I pres- right. it's listed, I would presume that your exit plan is to sell out the shares. Yeah, I think our plan is really in, in terms of that. But for Icon, I think there are a lot of work that we have done that could uh, potentially uh, create value. Uh, for example, we have invested in Jackup Briggs, um, and recently exited from it, which we make uh, double the money, paying it that out as a dividend to all shareholders. So that itself is, is a value creation from our perspective. Company continue to perform well. We do what we can, right? Not many, mu- not many investors make money in oil and gas. And I think we have the distinction of the few uh, investors that potentially make money in this sector. So, so that's for Icon. But I think a lot of our uh, investments under one fund tree. We have not really carrying it at full value. Uh, Alessan, for example, we are not carrying it at full value. Alessan has grown from when we acquire about 20 million EBITDA mm. to potentially about 70 million today and 100 million next year. So a lot Who would of... Who think Sportswear can make so much money? Yeah. But that's a reality because we are, we own the largest multi-retailer sports retail in Malaysia and I think they have performed extremely well. So there are a lot of levers that could, could potentially move up the returns for Tranche 3. Uh, so I'm not too worried. I think we'll be positive next year for Fund 3. So there are measures that we have put in place. But, you know, they say in fund management, absolutes don't tell the complete picture, right? So yeah. relative comparisons are important. Absolutely. So I use Prekin. I think they are an independent mm. data provider. Now, I looked at Tranche 2, which I think you say you're almost mm. winding up, right? Yeah. Um, that's your best performing fund. Net uh, internal rate of return of 8.6% per annum. Now, versus funds of the same vintage. And yeah. I know it's not an apple for apple comparison because I really could not find any data on Malaysian-only PE funds. Yeah. But when I look at the median for Asian funds, it's 14%. Yeah. 
So would you say that Equinox is underperforming then? No, I don't think it's a fair comparison. I think mm. uh, geography plays a big part. Yes, for sure. Uh, mandate plays a big part. Yes. Uh, so what is a fair return? Do you think 8.6 is a good return? 8.6%? Yeah, I think reasonably a uh, good return uh, for, for, for Equinox at 8.6%. If you look at, like I said, if you look at the stock market returns, what has it been for the past 10 years? If you put in money and equity... Uh, you wouldn't have gone anywhere. Exactly. So I think relatively... Uh, it's a it's a re- relatively good return, and on top of that, clearly I think we have a developmental mandate which uh, you need to account for that as well. So, a lot of decision while we try to optimize those decision sometimes can be suboptimal, right? Yeah. I'll give you an example. Uh, even when we want to exit some of our investment, uh, I think the last few investment, for example, our exit in food processing company, we have got we have to go through the hoops to ensure that we can exit those investments because I think uh, government at a point in time has introduced a, uh, just before, that's, uh, sorry, that is after our exit. But before that, we have to go through the hoops because uh, certain, there's sometimes a certain inconsistency in terms of application of certain regulations okay. in Malaysia, particularly with regards to Bumi, Bumi, mm. Bumi investment. And of course, as a Bumi investor, we are, always being put to the test in terms of, right, so you're exiting to potentially a non-boomy, non-boomy buyer, right? Mm. Uh, but in actual fact, certain sector has been liberalized, right? So that sometimes there's inconsistency. So I think we face that more than any other uh, institution in Malaysia. And I also looked at some other financial figures. And please correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I gather 900 million of your 4 billion seeded uh, funds has been spent on fund expenses. Is that correct? Why is that figure so high? I don't understand No, that, that. includes everything. Uh, that includes uh, management fee, that includes uh, interest expense and other, other, other things as well when we borrow money. Okay, and the other figure that pops up to me is this increase in Bumi Putra employees, right? Um, yeah. You put that very clearly in your annual report. And are you satisfied with this 12.3% for the increase in Bumi Putra employees and then what, 20% for Bumi Putra management. I would ask you, if the company was really growing, these numbers then don't sound really exceptional, would you say? Because this is one of the uh, objectives of Equinus. Yeah. So, well, I think you have to look at it that way. If the company is growing, it's a good outcome, right? Mm. So you can only hire additional people if the company is growing. Yeah. Right, so but I, I, think the number, you I, mean, only... I think you should look at it that, the other way. <laughs> but if I the company is <laughs> If the company is not growing and you're hiring more, then it's not healthy. But you would, I would imagine that only Equinus would pick growing companies in the first place, right? Yeah, so yeah. the question is whether these companies are growing exceptionally. Yeah, I would say so. Like I said, uh, Alisan has grown about three times here, EBITDA, mm. right? So a lot of our portfolio company has grown, in fact. So just give you an example, 2022, uh, compared to last year, for example, uh, we are expecting our company to grow in terms of revenue by about 30% and EBITDA by about 30%. So I think the outcome, the hard work that we've put in place to turn around as well to help our portfolio company, I think has uh, bear some fruits. So 2023, uh, a much better year for Equinus then? 2023, well, I certainly hope so. I think the pipeline is looking good. Uh, but like I said, uh, deal's not done until it's done, right? So uh, I think... Clearly, I think there's, there'll be some headwinds uh, going to 2023, uh, global uncertainties, uh, local uncertainties, uh, markets trading sideways. Mm. So I think all of that uh, will continuously to 
uh, will continuously put pressure on everyone, not only Aquinas. On that note, thank you for your time today on The Breakfast Grill with Syed Yasser Arafat, CEO of Equinas. I'm Mo Shawning, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.